Hello viewers, my name is Raven Corti, and welcome back to an episode of The Coastal Echo, and today we're going to be discussing um, a new system of government for after the apocalypse, uh, the sustainability of a lot of different things, and uh, what's going to happen from there. I have here with me uh, my boyfriend, Carson, as you know. Hi. And uh, my other boyfriend, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an introduction and a half right there. Hello, everybody. Yeah, I'm like Joe Exotic 2 over here. So, <laughs> <clears throat> nothing but meth and uh, Florida and uh, polyamory. So, I now understand the topic of anti-government. Florida, got it. <laughs> <laughs> alright, alright. So, first off, I'd like to start by saying that no one system of government works for every people on the planet um for example democracy does not work for africa at all in pretty much any part of africa um monarchy did not work for the romans for a very long time um just it's when you think about mongolia okay and you think about you know, a culture that grew up in Mesopotamia. The two different cultures. Um, one was focused on the betterment. Here, I'm going to turn the volume up for uh, what you guys sound like on the stream. One right. was focused on the betterment of the people in general, and the other one was focused on the survival of the people in general, and much less the betterment. And Mongolia was never going to produce a happy-go-lucky sort of, you know, democracy or benevolent culture. They were always, always going to produce a culture in which, you know, it was a warrior culture. That was always going to be the thing. Because Sick. they grew up in a completely different environment. And people as a whole, just, it, it's really dependent on the environment itself and what they value. You know, a hunting culture is going to be warrior. Agrarian is going to be more peaceful. That sort of deal. Yeah. So the uh, yeah, it what works for Americans and what works for Russians is not the same. So that being said, we're going to be discussing a new system of government today that's going to apply to uh the nation that uh this podcast is based off of uh the Coastal Republic and we're going to be um discussing first and foremost agriculture which will have a very large impact. So, let's talk about the bug pill. <laughs> mm. So, I feel uncomfortable you, with it. A lot of you people that um, you know, go to the chat rooms and stuff, they'll see memes about um liberals saying, "Just eat the bug." You know, all our all our meat is going to be replaced with bugs. But would that really be a bad thing? I mean, here are the facts. For, All right. for enjoyment, I believe, yes. Here are the facts. Okay. Fuck your enjoyment. <laughs> uh, the world is dying. Uh, ecosystem comes first, libtard. So, well, on that note, the world isn't necessarily dying, but it is quickly becoming unsustainable for the creatures within it to live. So, <laughs> you can yep. continue on the path in which meat is the main consumption. 
or you can continue along a path that is more sustainable for life as it is now. Yeah. Is the idea, right? Yeah, people don't know this, but um meat and like the livestock of the United States actually takes up and produces 50% more greenhouse gases than all of the cars in the world on its own and that's industrial agriculture alright so 50% more than every car in the world that's a fat number all right. Well, you gotta config. Uh, you gotta figure all these, you know, things that produce food, all these animals that eat, and then themselves require a lot of resources to sustain. So they are, of them themselves, they sort of by, they're a byproduct mm-hmm. of crop growth. If you were to remove livestock from the equation, you would basically cut almost all greenhouse gases in half and then some, like. That's that's saying something. Now, mealworms, which are the primary discussion of, you know, making uh, meat meals from insects, only produce about 20% of the greenhouse gases, you know, per pound uh, that current livestock makes, which is, you know, producing that much. And that, that would be a substantial, um, that would be a substantial change. Uh, in addition to this, Americans throw out over $161 billion worth of food every year that just basically decomposes. And uh, mealworms uh, can eat basically pretty much anything, and they can eat pretty much all of the um, all of that they can. And when they do, they produce a fertilizer that can be used to replace the artificial fertilizer that we use. Which, as I discussed in you know a few podcasts ago, uh, artificial fertilizer is killing the soil and making it so that we have to double our use of uh, industrial fertilizer every so many years, and that adds up really quickly, folks. Did you get the same yield? That adds up really quickly. It's absolutely unsustainable. So if we use mealworm um, worm castings, is what they're called, we could uh, replace that as a fantastic thing. Um, yeah, we're not arguing about whether or not meat is immoral in terms of, you know, cows and pigs and chickens and shit. Fuck them. All right? Fuck fuck the cows and pigs and chicken. What we need to think about is the sustainability and the cost-effectiveness of it. And I believe that mealworms are definitely better than that. In terms of sustainability, yeah, the idea being that they produce less gases, they're easier to upkeep, and you basically use waste to create a new resource which will be consumed. It's better recycling. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people are rather attached to meat because of taste and utilization. So is there some sort of happy medium here? Are these mealworms usable as a meat substitute in a way that's meaningful? Do they taste good? Well, in our system... Um, not only would we be growing uh, mealworms, we would also be growing uh, these mushrooms. Now, I talked about this when I was uh, doing that episode with Matthew. I believe you were there, Karsten. Not quite sure. Um, I don't remember that. We were discussing it, and we uh, came across several mushrooms after doing some research that taste like chicken. Uh, one of them tastes and smells uh, like lobster. I looked it up on YouTube. There's actually a guy uh, who makes 
a he makes videos about where he takes these mushrooms and meat substitutes and stuff and he like makes kfc out of them Hmm. like wow that's that's actually amazing and it's really it's a great um topic to discuss because if you were to use use mushrooms and to use mealworms you could effectively replace meat uh, nutritionally too as well as for taste an interesting prospect. I have heard before that mushrooms were used as a meat substitute or, you know, an additive to ground meats to make burgers that are effectively the same thing but use less meat, so it's cheaper. Uh, when I was at State, that was one of the things that a research Cutting study the there product, had done. as it were. You know, sure, like so the idea... Um... <laughs> My. So the idea is you use mealworms and mushroom as a meat substitute of sorts, right? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. In addition to this, uh, apart from that, the only other thing you would really need to produce is um, potatoes because humans can can survive on potatoes and milk or butter. And uh, you basically get all the nutrients you need from the, you know, from the mushrooms and the mealworms if you have the substitute there. And you also have potatoes and potatoes are pretty much everything else. Well, many cultures in you know past have been set around potatoes, and they're oh yeah they're a pretty efficient crop. You know, a Very lot of South efficient. American cultures pre-colonization you can were uh, potato based. You can grow a single potato in about uh, seventy days. Hmm. Um, you can grow about a hundred pounds of potato in a four by four box. So. To put that into perspective, if you're in some place like Florida or Louisiana or some place that doesn't have a strong winter, or even if you're using a greenhouse, you can produce, if you have it growing year-round, you can produce enough food to feed a person with just potatoes in like 16 square feet, maybe some more. That sounds pretty efficient. What are their nutrient needs, the actual potatoes themselves? What sort of special soil conditions do they need, or do well, they consume a lot of soil resources? fertilizing that. Sure. So that's a nutrient cycle. Yep, nutrient cycle. Hmm. And a very efficient one at that. Um, for feces after, you know, the collapse, uh, you don't you won't have plumbing. Okay. And it wouldn't be too terribly hard to, you know, go and shit in the bush or, you know, to have a chamber pot that you just like dump out. But for a new sort of city like how they did in medieval times, it would be very, very beneficial almost to have uh, tiger worms. They actually put them to use in India recently where they would have the tiger worms eat the feces and uh, then, you know, create worm castings or, you know, other things like that. Now, I'm not sure about tiger worm worm castings, but you could, uh, you know, crush up the tiger worm and use it as a fertilizer itself. Or, uh, let me just double check my facts here. I mean, even if they just remove the feculants, it is pretty good to do so as a society in a city. The necessity being removing waste as it's extremely, extremely dangerous, mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of infectious agents. Yeah, they can eat uh, flesh, um, according to this. Uh, they'll eat flesh. Uh, grains, decaying plants, and also seeds. So you could feed the uh, tiger worms to the mealworms to, uh, you know, pretty much in the time that it would take you to turn a normal turd into compost, it would be you know, a fraction of the time, relatively speaking. 
So you have a very efficient means of producing food here, and that is definitely very critical to the basis of any new government that is after the collapse, because with the fall of industrial agriculture and shipping, uh, like I said before, there's just like nine out of ten people are going to starve to death. No way they don't. In theory, right? Yeah. Like, I don't foresee any way that they can't, because... I mean... Go on. uh, Individuals can pick up how-to garden pretty quickly, in theory, right? And whether or not they're particularly efficient at this, they can at least subsist beyond starvation. Well, yeah, but first off... At desperate levels. Where do you... Go on. Raid, at that point. It could just become a society of thieves that take from people who are more successful farmers. Yeah. Nine out of ten, I don't think is super accurate but i do understand the idea which after a collapse of government there would be a lot of uh, a lot of starvation going around there would be a famine no doubt yeah you also have to consider that where would they get the seeds from you know like Mm. even if you have a massive garden in like a county of like forty thousand people it needs to be really big to even have enough seeds to you know feed itself and most towns just can't feed themselves like well wouldn't be possible there is a uh there is still a time period in between collapse and anarchy that there is still food around and resources around which can be harvested for their various components. Seeds, of course, from vegetables that exist on the market now. That's true. Uh, That's and would still exist before the collapse and rather right after, shortly thereafter. That's assuming that everybody uh, basically sees a collapse is coming. Uh, let's assume they're growing potatoes, so 70 days in advance thereabout. And all collectively decide to do that, and I don't, I don't foresee that happening <laughs> at all. Um, no, but there would be signs. There would Some be people. signs, but there's been. I suppose signs. I'm just debating you on the nine out of ten. I don't think it'd be that drastic, but it would be pretty horrible. There would be a lot of not good things. <laughs> I most definitely assume it would be that horrible. I mean, maybe I'm just overly optimistic. I think you're overly optimistic about it. Fuck. I don't think people are smart enough that are gonna they're gonna see it coming seventy days ahead of the time, especially if it's gonna be the oil collapse in uh, the Middle East. It's not gonna be you know a period of seventy days. It's gonna be a period of a month where our currency inflates to the point where it's useless. So, uh, yeah, that's 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 the entire system of agriculture right there. People will have potato boxes in their backyards or whatever. And they will grow potatoes, they'll have mushrooms for meat and mealworms for meat, and they'll have tiger worms and mealworms for disposing of things. Um, Possibly they could have uh, these things called elephant snails, which are an alternative livestock. It's currently being used in Africa, Um, you know, the Gambia, where you grow these elephant snails for about two years and then you sell them for about $20 each. When they mate, they have about 300 eggs. So they're definitely, um, if you think rabbits are cool, uh, <laughs> so you basically get like 300 times your crop of elephants well, every two years, at least. Do all of those eggs produce viable offspring? Is there like a Most percent them, recovery yeah. type thing? Okay, sure. So they're just particularly prolific. Yes. Sure. Okay. Now, in the wilderness, you know, most of them don't survive because... Right. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, yes, definitely. Because there's some organisms that just produce copious amounts of eggs that don't produce viable offspring like just because you know, shotgun it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah okay. uh, on a previous note, uh, how is it that these mushrooms are to be grown? Are they the same as any other crop, or do they 
require specific conditions because mushrooms currently like you know the shiitake you buy off the shelf at the store are grown basically in old mines or caves in a specially designed like wood pulp cast because their nutrient needs are so specific for well, I would requiring they would, detritus. I imagine they would specifically be grown in greenhouses. And sure. They, they um they wouldn't even be a necessity because you already have mealworms and stuff. Right. So it's just so, a flavor thing at that point. It's just a flavor okay. thing at that point. Sure. It's just something that I added in because it's interesting and I wanted it to be noted. But you can survive with mealworms and potatoes at minimum. Oh, what an existence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I what you're saying. Though. I'll take at that the bare minimum. Death, I get yeah. it. And then, and at the end of the day, you know, as you expand your crop load, you can, you know, add tomatoes for flavor, this, that, or another. I got you. That sort of thing, yeah. So, an example of when something like this was done would be, uh, you know, not on this level, of course, and not with this exact <laughs> system, but back during World War One and World War Two, there were uh, these things called Victory Gardens, which produced over 40% of all the food that uh, people needed in the United States. And there were only a few million of them. So, uh, if you actually look at the sustainability and you know how efficiently you can grow food on something, you can grow an immense amount of food. I have an infographic here uh, that I'm just gonna open up real quick. Uh, yeah, here it is. It says it. It came from a book, and we're waiting for it to load. Uh, from a quarter of an acre, you can harvest 1,400 eggs, 50 pounds of wheat, uh, 60 pounds of fruit, 2,000 pounds of vegetables, 280 pounds of pork, and 75 pounds of nuts, which hmm. is uh, a very, very uh, good amount of food. Um, that's almost enough to feed a person, I believe, who eats. Is that an annual production yes, count? Yes, an annual or... production okay. count. Um, yeah, that's just on a quarter of an acre. So on a full acre, you can hypothetically produce, uh, you know, four times that. But right. I don't know about the, you know, fertilizer required or anything like that. Or if that's yeah, long term. Yeah. But... Well, there is crops that restore soil, and there is organisms that do it. So over time, in theory, and as you said, with the uh, fertilizer produced by mealworms, in mm -hmm. theory, you should be able to keep the soil safe over time. Yes, yes. So... Uh, Victory Gardens could produce enough food to actually hold off a collapse uh, and mass starvation if they were actually implemented, and that is something that, regardless of whether or not you're left wing or right wing, we can all agree: food good. All right. So, <laughs> as long yeah. as like we can all agree that making food is an essential thing, uh, except for maybe the communists who don't seem to think so. Um, <laughs> We all know how that turned. Well, how that one turned out, folks. <laughs> so, if this is done and everybody produces as much food as they can, we can definitely feed ourselves uh, with our technological level. We don't need to, you know, ship things from different places. Um, the only reason why this would be blocked would be the special interest groups of those that are working in the pharmaceutical, uh, not pharmaceutical, in the uh, industrial agriculture industry. Well, I mean, the current system exists because it means very few people can feed the world's population and the rest of the world can be, you know, doing other things or being lazy. Yeah, and... In theory, yeah, mind no, you. Mind you yeah. that <laughs> this is not at all uh, beneficial. Like, if 
you compare the lifestyle of the medieval peasant to the modern person. The medieval peasant didn't have technology or anything like that, obviously, but they only worked for about two-thirds of the year at most. Sometimes, some counts actually put it at one-third of the year, because that was their harvest time, and what the fuck else are you going to do when you're in medieval Europe and, you know, the plants are growing, you can't make them grow faster. So, right, you just maintain them and then probably, I don't know, go to church. Yeah, you maintain them, Europe. you go to church, you do whatever <laughs> you desire with your peasant life. No one can deny that it was actually quite sedentary compared to the modern person who has to work who gets maybe 45 days off a year and that mm. is bullshit like <laughs> yeah i mean my myself i you know work five days a week obviously and then <clears throat> at least two saturdays a week or a month rather mm-hmm. every um, month for a year you figure how many days off is that yeah it says here on this uh yeah, everybody thinks that peasants, you know, did this backbreaking labor, but that's not true. Uh, it also wasn't very harsh, harsh. It was, you know, a lack of technology that really did them. And, um, yeah, it's it was just, it's brainlet tier to n- just take the things that we see about history at, like, a face value. Um, well. As they say, history is written by the victors. Yeah, in this case, it was definitely democracy who want everybody to believe that, um, you know... Somehow this is better. Somehow it's it's better to live in a one-bedroom apartment, never be able to afford your own house, uh, never be able to do literally anything meaningful with your life, or have a family, and uh, be in debt your whole life, and work every day of your life, basically. Just go to school, dummy. That way you can also have college debt while you do all those things. Yeah, go to school, <laughs> have college debt while you do all those things. And yes. have three roommates so you can afford to eat tomorrow. Yeah. God, think about all your opportunities. Oh my god, it's the <laughs> yeah. land of the free. I'm an Instagram influencer. Whatever you say, it isn't tiring. Yeah. <laughs> Just give me my fucking mud hut. Give me my mud hut and my fields. I don't even care. I'll take it. Yeah, just... give me my mud hut, my field, my king, and I'm good. Okay. Yeah, let's, let's, I suppose let's... it does beat starvation. Yeah, it's <laughs> also worth noting that um, from a historical point of view, uh, kings were not tyrants at all. Oh, no, hell no. They barely had control. If you look at, like, um, Charlemagne... He had to constantly rotate his residence throughout his entire domain just to ensure that he, like, touched base with everyone. Not even to, like, ensure control, just to ensure that he could touch base. Hey, he would I'm never. Emperor here. Don't call yourself king or I'll kill you. <laughs> I yeah, mean... like, he didn't actually have any, like, sort of centralized control. Most kings of the period had no centralized control mm-hmm. whatsoever. That's it wasn't probably... like. Sorry, like... no, I won't interrupt you. Uh, no worries, the, but like <laughs> the idea of like a, a king and his men. No, there's no like there's no royal guard. There's no like um, at most one. There's no like standing. Two, you know, like yeah, the crown line. That's it. It's not even a standing army. It's a king, his nobles, which is like the ruling class, and then if you need an army, it's well, you've got all these like serfs just sort of sitting around, and they've got farming tools, and those kill people pretty good. 
or whomever you can buy with gold. But I suppose you can attribute that lack of control to yeah. a lack of, uh, you know, widespread communication, or rather, yeah, a system it would be... of communication that is fast, which exists in modern day, which is why governments have more control, right? In well, theory. Nowadays, we also have like standing armies too, which yes. back then you can't yeah. just like that wasn't a like... thing since Rome in the medieval and Renaissance periods, yeah. except for like you Italy, can't... which was mercenary yeah. armies, not really standing armies. Right, you well, levied only... an army. Mm -hmm. That was only around like the 14 to maybe early late 1300s. I'd I'd say I'm I'm not super well versed on Italy. I'm I'm more of a Germanic man. <laughs> but uh the what was i talking about standing armies right. right um like the reason we can do it now is because it's a standing army that's not necessarily loyal to a country but loyal to a government mm -hmm. and sort of back in the day like you can't just send an army to deal with someone everyone is sort of like there to keep each other in check in a way because mm -hmm. like the, i mean that everyone talks about like all the complications of like court life but in a way that like does really help you if no one really knows a whole lot like mm -hmm. this mixes it, in with communication as well like if they don't know a whole lot like wow <laughs> would it does this guy hate the king because i kind of hate the king but like if i fucking start up he can call on a hell of a lot more serfs than i can and he also has uh, a whole lot more landed gentry under him, which means a lot more, like, well-trained soldiers, and this, that, and the other thing, like, it's a lot more complex than people give it, like, credit for. Yeah, it's also worth noting that, um, most like of them believe that if they ruled badly, they would go to hell. Like, there's no disputing that the vast majority of kings were religious to a very large extent. Like, yeah, yeah. Hell, uh, enlightened a death. lot of. Oh yeah, like a lot of, like modern depictions of like old kings. They're always like, oh yes, it's it's a great way to keep the the peasantry in line. They all they all just fucking, they do whatever the pope tells them to. Like, no, no, that's, that's dumb. The that's not at all. Like held immense sway. There's no. There probably wasn't a whole lot of recorded history given the period. Yeah. At least not enough. Well, like, that, yeah, a granted all. Almost all of it swayed. Almost mm -hmm. all of it swayed. There is no, like, up until like a certain point, every history written was commissioned by someone powerful, mm -hmm. and that someone powerful would want history to look back on them and say, "Wow, this guy pretty was pretty good." And so, and also, it was almost always written by someone who could read or write. Which, in up until, God, I don't know, printing press probably. Well, no, up until, like, literacy... Well, yeah. Yeah, printing the printing press really started, started like, literacy, basically. Yeah, so, like, Anything before that was religious. What was that, 1400s? 1500s? You can look it up. Yeah, it's... I don't want to look it up right now, but... Well, <laughs> they didn't have a reason like, to have that right Yeah, and so, yeah. yeah, you would always have, like, a religious bent. And so you've got all these, like, rulers looking back, and they see all the examples of good rulers, and all these good rulers are, well, he was devout... He was not necessarily warlike, but like stoic, pious. No, yeah, it's always pious and always reluctantly warlike. I think is the best way to put that. I mean, that's, because like it's it's that's not necessarily you, true. That you always, part. but you always have to like mm -hmm. put on the display of strength, because otherwise, like that that okay. leads like a whole like sort of chain reaction. You look at all the weak English kings. 
Like, all the ones that really just screwed the pooch. <laughs> and they... First off, they almost never had, like, the loyalty of their nobility. First off, almost all the weak English kings, massive patrons of the arts, and nothing else. <laughs> and, like, uh... like the strong the strong kings patron... Like, they, they were patrons of the arts, but very lightly. But the weak ones, they... They, they only, like... They only focused on, like, the pleasures of life. Seems like the type of people so, that didn't actually want to be kings. And yeah, just and the so role. then you don't, you don't put on that display of strength, and thus your nobility, which was, uh, with all these English kings, almost always the case, the nobility was the one to, like, step in. They're gonna just, they're gonna turn on you, like hungry dogs. Because someone <laughs> wants power. Yeah, it's... That's... ...though that, um... I believe his name was Henry, but he was the one who, in the 100 Years' War, uh, gave up an immense amount of English uh, land in France for the promise of peace without actually getting anything in writing, and uh, basically said, ah, yes, after this, we're going to have peace, and then, you know, didn't. That king was noted and was disliked because he was not, he was against war. That was his problem, he was against war. I think it was the... Either the son or the grandson of Edward the Third. Oh, fuck! The I have my is... notes on this somewhere. Like I, 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 I just like. The point <laughs> is that the, uh, that it was it was very it was a very warlike time, and war was a commonplace yeah. thing. And definitely, the code of chivalry did not extend to the peasantry at all. If oh no! You were there a are in um, war. You were fucked. But there are documents actually. Um, from, I think, I think it was a noble in Spain who wrote a document to be read aloud to his peasant, uh, to, to, like, some town. And, like, there is no diplomacy in it whatsoever. He just out of, goes out of his way to say, God, I hate all of you and I'm going to oppress the living shit out of you. If I could, I would spit on every single last one of you. And you're just going to take it. You're gonna, you're gonna fucking give me those taxes, and you, like, it's like some weird humiliation fetish. <laughs> it's just some like... of you maybe may die, but that is a sacrifice I am willing to make. It's definitely like that's not necessarily untrue. Granted, that's not a rule, but like as yeah, some of the boyars in Romania actually had extraordinarily good relations with. Uh, their peasants and a lot of lords throughout history did. Um, yeah, like imagine, really... imagine the situation where all these like uh, you know lost causers and you know people that love the Confederacy are talking about the slaves loving their masters and stuff. Ex- mm-hmm. Except it's actually true. Um, hey, we're at the thirty <laughs> yeah, minute mark. Like... I forgot to slip in an ad. Hold on, boys. Let me let me restart the recording here. It's also going to 